And, and Blade Runner is a classically a story about trying to be disinterested, analytical, maybe robotic-ish, so much to the point where you're not really sure if Decker's a human or an irreplicant. He goes about the world kind of dispassionately. But at the same time, there's a lot of fear. Like every moment, hey, the world could just explode in violence. And and it does. And and it's the fact that, you know, when I when I used to tell the team, I said, I want to play this game and I want to be with my finger quivering over the mouse when I go from one room to the next because I want to be I want to be absolutely terrified that something might happen, knowing that it probably won't. to go. Welcome back to another edition of the Board with Nelly podcast. Today I'm joined by Louis Lou Louis Castle. Um, he's an iconic video game designer who's worked on so many games that I've personally played that many people around the world have played. Lion King, Monopoly, Command and Conquer, Blade Runner, and countless other games. I am so thrilled to have you here. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, it's great to be here again. Um, so when, when we talk about the early days and how you got into gaming, was it mostly because you enjoyed the artwork, the design? Because in your time, obviously, gaming was a completely different ball game. Yeah. Um, so back in the 80s, when I first started getting into video games, I really it was really fine arts that got me into games. Um, up until that time, I had, I had gotten into computers. For, I like playing video games and arcades and stuff. And I got a computer thinking I would use that for architecture because that was going to be my chosen profession. Um, and, it, you know, it's truth be told, I bought it for architecture. I justified it with architecture, but I bought it so I could play some games. You know, that was, that was Most part of people the bought a computer for a completely different reason <laughs> than they used it, right? <laughs> exactly. And, and I worked at a computer store after I, after I first bought my computer. I worked in the same store I bought it from. And so I got to be pretty proficient with things. And I was working on new computers at the time, the Macintosh had come out in 1984. And, um, you know, it, it offered the ability to do graphics with a mouse and things like that. So, um, so basically from 80, I think probably 81, 82, I started getting into just games on computers and um, trying to do artwork on computers mostly, which led me into programming. And so programming, because you couldn't really do artwork on computers back then, there were no tools, there were no mice, there were no tablets. You just, I mean, the, the very high end silicon graphics machine, sure, but not from a consumer level, not a, not a microcomputer. So um, anyways, I started doing artwork, um, showed some of my artwork at the computer store, uh, ran into a couple of people that were working on some um, uh, 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 educational games from Unicorn Software uh, that were customers of the store, ended up working at the store. And then we, we just started working together. I would do a little bit of artwork here and there, do a little bit of animation. Um, back then, it was really fun. I used to take and draw the animations out in like a flipbook standard, mm -hmm. and then trace them onto millimeter graph paper, and then bubble in the patterns on the graph graph paper for the colors that you want. Especially for the Apple II, is really weird. Every other pixel made color. So if you did odd pixels, it would make like an orange. If you did even pixels, it would make blue. Right. And if you did both the odd and even way make white. And so I would sit there and hand encode them and hand write wow. down the hexadecimal and then type the hexadecimal in to create the bitmaps for the object. So it was very crude. Yeah, I was going to say, say laborious <laughs> process. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's how that's how this stuff started in the early days. That was the only way to get like, um, for me anyways, I mean, other people did it differently, but for me, that was the way to get the natural feel from my pen and pencil. 
Because right. if I could draw it, I could I could sit there with blue line and get it right and then go in and bubble it in and I could get something that looked kind of right. And then you had to deal with the aspect ratio. So when you put it on the computer, it didn't quite look sure. exactly right. It would get stretched or squashed a little bit. So you learn to like draw things. And, and later it served me pretty well when we work on the, um, a bunch of Disney games. We had to make characters like Donald Duck and Goofy and Mickey and they, they had to be on register. So they had to look just like the characters. So it was that skill of being able to draw the characters slightly squished and then being able to, that, that would knowing that that would end up being stretched out and look Different better on the computer um, or on the monitor, yeah. right? Yeah, so that's that's how, how I started. How is that transition from basically art to gamification to making something uh, an experience as opposed to just a viewing experience, right? Yeah, so so it was basically uh, just a standard evolution. I was doing the artwork for games. I needed to learn how to program because every time I want to do any kind of animation, getting a programmer to work with you was just really difficult to do. They programmers were hard to find. And when you, you know, I think, I think at the time, if you had asked me, I would have said they were lazy. I don't think they were really lazy. <laughs> right. just, it just was a lot, a lot harder back sure. then. So I learned to program to animate my art. And once I did that, then I was working with my friend Brett to, to work on some projects together. The first two, I just did the artwork. Um, and then a couple low level routines, uh, things called shift on the fly and stuff like that, that was kind of technology based for art. Um, and then that's where I just led automatically into our first games contract. And um, Brett did the design and um, uh, the writing. He's quite a good writer. Uh, and he did the business development stuff. And then I did the the programming and the artwork for the very first game that Westwood ever did, which was called um, Temple of Abstract Trilogy. Um, before that, we had worked on a couple of games together yeah, as well. Yeah, I was going to say, because you're an artist and you get to work right off the bat on Disney stuff. I mean, that seems like... Well, that was a little longer. That well, was a, few it was a bit longer? Past. Yeah, a but few years going later, into but, Disney, but not that many. Right, like that's yeah. pretty impressive. Or do you consider yeah. yourself lucky or fortunate to be in the, the space? Yeah, no, I, I'm very, very lucky. I, I really love, uh, I always love the Disney work, as anybody in my age, especially. Um, Disney was just enchanting. The, the quality of their work was the Pixar of their day, you know. I guess Pixar's owned by, the, everything's owned by them now. But, <laughs> but, but, uh, but it was definitely something that was, uh, you know, I, the things I loved growing up were, uh, I love board games, books. Uh, I played Dungeons and Dragons. I love the movie Blade Runner from when sure. people didn't think it was a cool movie to love. And um, there was just a lot of things that I loved doing. And Brett was a huge fan of Dune. Um, and so what's funny is um, over the years, I don't know if it was just serendipity or because we did good work and people wanted to work with us. Um, we found the opportunities to work on Disney products, to work on um, these great licenses, these great IPs, even Monopoly. When sure. we were presented with the idea to do Monopoly, I think it was in like 93, we were owned by Virgin at the time. And, and I said, oh, man, I'd really love to do Monopoly. And, right, and of course. The, the, the pre- no, no, the president was shocked. He's like, what? <laughs> Why would Westwood want to do Monopoly? You guys do role-playing games and you're doing you know, strategy games. You're doing all this stuff and there's sort of high-end AAA stuff. Why would you want to do a board game? And I'm like, oh, because nobody's done it right. right. You know, Mon- Monopoly is like, it's it's this idea, this imagination. When I was a kid, I loved imagine, taking little figures and moving them on the board and imagining these properties, Belmont and you know Park Place and our artists just really dug it. And they really got into it. And um, I worked on a, some of the animation stuff, but, uh, but at that time um, the, the windows, when, when G was really hard to do. So Mike Lake and Mike Grayford had come up with ways to play video using the compression algorithms we had built before, but to do it in windows. So we were able to make a monopoly that really brought that fantasy to life with animations in the middle of the board. Um, and then frankly, the thing that really excited me about monopoly was trading. I, I always felt it was a game about trading, not really a game about accumulation of things. And so I, I wrote the um, the AI for doing trades in um, Excel with uh, Visual Basic, actually. Wow! And then uh, Mike Rayford ended up uh, having the the 
the, the long luxurious task of converting that into C plus so that it could go so to work with the game. That was the first Monopoly game, right? And was that one of your better Monop- selling products oh, or no? No, it wasn't the first Monopoly no, it wasn't, game. No. I think they had, they had probably done four or five, maybe oh, really? four. Um, and no Monopoly game until then had sold more, really anything. Really? Because it was um, more like UI and, and stuff like that? And it wasn't. Um, just... No, I think the reason they didn't sell is because um, they basically just translated the game of Monopoly to the computer. And um, it's just, they didn't offer anything new. And it's been a big theory of mine for intellectual property development is that anytime you're working on somebody's intellectual property, um, after you're done, no matter what you were paid or not paid, whether you're doing it for free or whatever, the value of the overall property should be better after sure. you worked on it. Um, and that and that's really not the way most people think about intellectual property. They think, well, we've paid for it, so we're going to make this thing and just sort of hang it on the side, and we'll get this benefit, the shine of having IP. And and actually, I think it's the wrong way to think about things. So, so are you talking about people? Uh, sorry, the, are you talking people at the higher level, or are you talking about programmers and developers? I would assume that's um, not. I think I think uh, business people sign up IP, but I think a lot of developers. Um, view IP as a way of trying to make the thing that they maybe didn't have as much faith in be a little bit more valuable. And instead of thinking about the IP as the thing that drives the innovation and drives the idea, right. um, that's just my personal belief. And um, it sort of stands true. If you look at the games that I've worked on over the years, um, some of them were big risks that didn't work out like Dragon Flight. We were probably just uh, Dragon Strike. Sorry, it was a flight simulator with dragons in the D&D world. And it was a great game. I really, one of my favorite to do. And it did well-ish, but, you know, it didn't kind of really take off. But we were way too early. Flight simulators back then were, you know, kind of really crude polygons and not much in the way of textures and stuff. So um, probably just a little ahead of its time. To back what you're saying, I mean, if you think about a lot of, you know, g- movies that were turned into video games, there isn't a lot of success there. We're talking a lot <laughs> of rush no, projects many. and a lot of failures, but you've been, a, you've been a part of multiple successes, which is within itself a kind of a remarkable thing. Yeah, um, I've only done... From a movie point of view, I think Dune, I, I mean, Dune I Blade Runner. Right? Yeah, no, I think I think like I say, I was only I think it's only been three: Dune, Blade Runner, and um, Lion King. And they've all been great, um, or at least yeah, much I, better I, than I the never really, movie game. Yeah, <laughs> right? yeah, I think that that might be my, my claim to fame when it comes to translating other people's intellectual property. Is um, I, I mean, uh, we've had hit or misses on our own stuff, and that's always true in a creative process. But when it comes to translating other people's stuff, we've had nothing but hits. Um, Monopoly, I, I didn't finish the story there, but it sold millions of copies, which up until that time, hundreds of thousands would have been a hit. So um, it was really, really successful. Monopoly uh, it was for Windows 95. Some people uh, regard that Monopoly as the best of its kind, even to this date. And uh, when I looked at the footage of the gameplay, um, what I see that you guys did really well is, you know, make it intuitive. That seems like a challenge to yeah. bring a board game into a virtual space. How do you make it intuitive? Just like, you you know, you're playing with friends with cards and, and money. And, right? Exactly. Yeah. Was and that make, the big challenge? It was the the challenge. I mean, the t- the technical challenge, the visual challenge that our art team did was bringing the fantasy monopoly to life, which made it a delight to play. And and it's not that visuals are everything, but certainly if it's not more entertaining to play, why would you play the computer game instead of the the um, the board game? Sure. And then the technical challenges were were manyfold, but two of them which were really hard. The internet was brand new back then. Um, Windows ninety five was basically the the advent of the web era, and so lots of things were just broken and they didn't work well. So our game worked pretty well. So you could play with somebody across the internet, which is not a trivial thing back then. And was um, that was Monopoly, one... or this was the first then online. No, it, was, it just wasn't. No, it was, it was, it was the first one online, wow. but it was, there yeah. might've been others that did like, you know, uh, null cable modems and things like that. But, but no, it wasn't really, it, there were other games online, but this was the first that was 
kind of internet-enabled uh, monopoly. It was literally, I wanted to put on the box one to 25 million players, but um, Hasbro <laughs> wouldn't do it because they, they thought it was uh, misleading. Uh, maybe it was, but I thought it was cheeky. The I don't legal think team was really not expected. having it, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I didn't think anybody really expected that to be true, but, you know, it was kind of funny. But we, when we launched Monopoly, we launched it simultaneously in Europe, Asia, and the United States playing a game against each other in 1995, That's crazy. which was like crazy back then. So that was one big technical challenge. And Mike Legg just did a phenomenal job of making that work. And then the second technical challenge was the artificial intelligence because um, we wanted to make sure there was a variety of players because fun of the fun of playing Monopoly alone against a computer, it gets pretty boring if the computer plays the same way all the time because you just learn how to beat them. Spot on. So. So we created a master system, and I was the engineer of that, the the architect of it. Um, Grapeford was the one who did the final coding because I wrote it all in Excel. Literally, you could look at, open up an Excel sheet, and it was a Monopoly board, and you could set the conditions of whatever the time in the game was and all that. And then the expert system would then do a predictive model of what was the right thing to do at any given point. And that's where I built in all the trading. Um, so I think that's what really made it a lot of fun. Um, and as a, a testimony to how good it was, my son was probably I don't know, eight years old at the time or something like that. He was playing Monopoly with my um, with my uh, my mother, and my mother was my mom was never one to to dodge a game. She did her best, so she would beat you all the time. Right. Well, he played Monopoly on the computer all the time. He, he got to where he beat her regularly, and she really? said, "How do you how do you how do you play that Monopoly on the computer?" <laughs> so she she definitely wanted to know, so and she did play on the computer and got better too. It's like. Uh, if nothing else, you could get really good at Monopoly playing that game because you could you could even go in and customize your your opponents by weighting what properties they like and what do they like to be cash positive or do they like to have um, will they will they mortgage properties don't they? There's a lot of philosophies in in Monopoly. I bet people don't think about that. I mean, sure they think about when they're playing against someone all the different things they could do, but to code a game and make all you know all these features accessible yeah. is such a, a hurdle. Well, Monopoly, Monopoly allowed for six players at the same time, and it would offer six-way trades. So it would say, I know that as a player, the Monopoly would go, I know that my name is, uh, one of them was Dana, Fox and Dana, we were big uh, X-Files fans, Fox and Dana, right? So Fox would say, oh, I really want to get this property, and it's my turn, you know, I'll stop to do the trade. But, um, you know, uh, uh, Nelly doesn't have what I want, but Nelly has what Joe wants and Joe has what Bill wants and it would go six ways. It would figure out recursively and figure out, let me just propose this big trade. It would pop up on everybody's screen that's playing and you would sit there and go, okay, do I think this is a good trade for right. me? And so the fact that it would make these complex, most of the time it was one-on-one, -on -one, but every now and then it would give you a two-way, a three-way trade, a four-way trade, all the way up to a six-way trade. And I think it just delighted people who played the game because if you're playing by yourself with five uh, artificial opponents and somebody trades this produces this incredibly complicated trade it's sort of like a oh this is not you know kind of a, a silly just you know throwaway game it's somebody thought thought really long and hard about it and there were like 52 different rule variants that we had to implement too to be an official monopoly game so you could play it in all the different places around the world so um it's it was, a really it great, great game. Topic. Yeah, no, I, 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 I when I look, <laughs> I don't at the, usually right? talk much about it. And I the know. music, hey, let's, <laughs> hey, let's not forget the music. I mean, I mean, Frank Lepaki did such a beautiful job on the music. It basically was jazz through the ages, from ragtime all the way up to modern, uh, and it's just some of the most enchanting music, all MIDI. Um, so just amazing. Yeah. yeah. When I when I do a little bit of research on on guests and some of the things they've made, and I kind of saw your resume of all these crazy games, and I kind of saw Monopoly on there. I'm like, well, maybe I'll look some footage of Monopoly. And I was like surprised, like the atmosphere, the music that you had online. It, I was like, man, I kind of want to play Monopoly right now, a game that's like 30-something <laughs> years old. 
Right. And, and it, and it was, and it's still fun. Like, uh, my dad, my dad until recently used to play it on his computer all the time because he had a really old system. We got him a new one. I don't think I got it up and running. Um, and it's one of the games that we, so many of my games are very difficult to play. Like Blade Runner, we pushed the, the absolute limits of the machines of the day. And so, um, it wasn't until people had done a remastering that you could actually play it on modern, modern machines. So for decades, nobody could play Blade Runner anymore, but now you can, which is great. Uh, when, when I look back at some of the even older games uh, in your in your career, some of the ones that are only maybe very simple ones, um, some like Mars Saga, Donald's Alphabet yeah. Chase. I'm always curious, <laughs> like, what do you remember from those days? What do you miss and what do you kind of not miss from those days? Because you can make well, up I mean, one game a month you've said before. So that's kind of... Uh, oh, that was before. Yeah, before. Yeah, it was way before. Even before uh, that. that was, yeah, yeah. In, 19, in the 1980s, like 82, 83, 84... Um, I was submitting a game to the Apple um, fan magazines uh, and my goal was to do it once a month. I didn't always get it done once a month, but I tried to. And um, back then you would write a, a little piece of basic code that would um, basically bring up the thing saying, this is the game that you're about to play or whatever, some introduction. And then from that point on, when the game would actually start, it would actually just grab a big data table that was just a bunch of numbers with commas between them. And that was all assembly language code. So basically when people were typing in all those numbers, they were typing in the assembly code that would be drive the game. And uh, so so I used to submit one, one in the beginning, they were all written in basic. I did like Squirm, which was just a, a surround game and right. other ones were just written in basic. Um, then as I got got further along, I started doing assembly language stuff and worked on, you had to write really small code because, um, you know, the magazines wanted to publish your game, but there's only so many pages of typing that people will do before just nobody's going to type it in. It takes too long. So wait, so, wait, I'm sorry. I'm a little confused. The, you would send them the code and then someone else could... <laughs> I know this is very confusing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> at the time, yeah, at the time, um, cassette, cassette drives uh, were a luxury. Not everybody had them. Modems were unheard of. Um, there was no other medium right. for your computers. It was These were hobby computers. So the way that people got games is you would go into a... You read a book, a magazine, you'd get the mail, and they would have some games in there. You would just type in the basic code and you would hit run and it would run the game. And more, more often than not, you would make a mistake and it wouldn't work or <laughs> they would misprint something and it wouldn't work. Um, so one of my innovations I did was it was called a cyclic redundancy check on the data. So I built that into the checker, the basic checker. So it would go through and use the CRC to make sure that all the lines were entered and the magazine almost lost it when they said, oh my God, what did you do? Because I'm like, what? I, I hope it was okay. And they're like, no, no. They called me on the phone and they're like, no, like we, we were, we had a mistake and it said there was a mistake in line 27. How did you do <laughs> Wait, that? You, you, and I'm did, like, you were the first to do that? I, like, that's, I, I was one, one of the first, of the first. I don't know, that's that was great. one of the very first ones to do that. <laughs> so, that's like so, fundamental in every coding language today. Well, yeah, but, but as a type in game, there wasn't a, nobody was doing error checking on the lines. Right, right, right. And so, um, and so that, you know, it was really important that they, uh, they kept the things that would say yeah, anyways, but it was really, it was fun. <laughs> so wait, you had to know how to code and you had to have a computer and you have to have the, the, the like software to, you had to have all these things just to be able to play a game yeah. that you've seen a magazine. That's like a couple. Well, of you would, you would, no, you didn't really need to have the code. You would just go into a basic and, um, every computer came with a basic, basic, oh, yeah. uh, basic assembly. And that's not similar. It's just the basic, basic language. And you would just go in there and say, start the program. And you just type it all in, just whatever's in the magazine. You didn't really need to know what you were doing. Um, that's actually why people made so many mistakes because, you know, you can't, if, if somebody's typing in 257, comma, 123, comma, 96, comma, it's like, it's really easy to make a mistake. You're typing right. in these rows and rows and rows of numbers. And so that was why the innovation of on this line, it would tell you what, what, um, 
what error there was. We just it wouldn't know what the which line you made the mistake on to the nature of CRCs, but it would tell you what line number it was on, which was really helpful. I gotta be honest, I'm kind of happy I missed that uh, era <laughs> of gaming. I like now that I can just fun, turn on Steam. I like this game by it's ready. To go. It's amazing what kind of stuff you could do with that. But that was really helpful when we did the Mars saga because that was for the Commodore um, 64. And um, the machine just didn't have a lot of memory. So to build an, an RPG, um, the map for the Mars saga was 256 by 256 battle maps. And each one of the battle maps was 256 by 256 cells. So nowadays you go, oh, no big deal. Just make an array. It's like, well, you had 64K of memory. Um, 64, yeah, it's not 64K. Yeah. Right. So. <laughs> So 256 by 256 was 16, 16K, basically. Right. It's an interesting time when you had so many constraints and yet still somehow found ways to make simple and fun games. Six um, by, yeah, it's even bigger than that. <laughs> Anyways, yeah, that yeah. Yeah, it was, it's huge, yeah. So it was huge. So, <laughs> so that, there was a little, it's literally a lot of the things that we used then, we did, um, we basically got down, uh, we, we got to the point where, I wouldn't realize how much help how much help it would be having started as a, as, a, as a hobbyist, but then later in life they became hugely um, valuable. So one of those was we did a lot of Apple II GS games, um, and the Apple II GS was basically an Apple II that had a sixty-five-eight sixteen assembler in it, which was a sixteen-bit assembler tacked onto an eight-bit sixty-five-zero-two, and very weird little assembly, little real chip that that worked in both um, uh, words as well as bytes, sixteen and eight-bit. Well, you, we did a lot of games because not many people would even bother to learn. It was really challenging. So GS didn't have a lot of games built that would take advantage of the Apple II GS. It was more powerful than an Apple, so you could always run an Apple II game on it. That was the beauty of the 65816. You could actually run a 65 code on it. But what was really cool was here comes out the Super Nintendo, and the Super Nintendo, lo and behold, uses exactly the same chip. All right. So all of, the, all of the Westwood games on the Super Nintendo, like Lion King and others, had this built-in expertise where we had we really understood the chipset very well, so we were able to do things with Lion King that uh, really shocked Disney and, and and to some extent even Nintendo, like the three D the three D uh, mode and when the wildebeest are chasing Simba, that was just somebody where just there, there was more than one person technically said that wasn't possible until we did it. So yeah, Lion King is a very maybe might be one of the first games I played of yours because when I think back at it, I don't remember I didn't remember until I watched the footage. And I'm like I definitely played this when I was a kid, and then I remember like. I think I gave up on it at some point because it was too difficult. But I, I remember the vivid art style, the music, and it kind of blew my little brain away because I was like, "This is <laughs> this is a better than the movie. Why is why is no one talking about this? Why is everyone talking about the movie? This game is way more interactive and way more fun." Yeah, and back and back then it looked better than it does today. And I know that sounds like a weird statement, but um, the the artist in that day and age had to think of um, NTSC. And uh, for those who don't know, NTSC, never the same color. It's really not what it stands for. But uh, but that's the joke that we used to make is NTSC. Um, but the way it was is a raster scan that would go across the screen. And the hardware in the televisions were analog, and they couldn't change the color to the next pixel entirely if you change too many guns at once. And so the artist would take advantage of that by putting certain colors next to each other on the Super Nintendo, and it would cause a sort of fading between them and give it a roundedness that gave you a fake um, feeling of resolution. But of course, when all the digital uh, copies of the Super Nintendo games came out, they would pixel perfect all this bit art. And I saw people going, look at this blocky bit art. It was such a great style. I'm like, that's not what it looked uh, like. That's, that's just not what, yeah, it's just not what it looked like in the day and age because we didn't have those crisp edges. The little blur was actually necessary to get some of the effects that we had. So you'll see some 
some old uh, games, not just ours, but all the games from the old Super Nintendo and some of these other gaming systems, and they'll do them faithfully in, um, in good old games and other places. And you'll go, wow, that stuff looked really blocky. And what's that weird purple character, purple pixel doing there? And, and the reason was is that, that, that in the hardware of that time, it wouldn't be able to change the color fast enough. It also meant that we had to be really careful about which, which ones we use in that way because PAL worked a little bit differently, and that was the European standard. So. It's very interesting to me the games you kind of made in the earlier days and how they perfectly kind of collaborated to give you the ultimate form in, in what you created with Westwood and you know Command and Conquer and and stuff like that because you created a really cool artsy looking game that was uh, you know captivating. Then you had like a little bit of online with Monopoly gamification. You're basically mm -hmm. creating all these skill sets. And then how do you go from making these little games to eventually starting your own company and, and from there? Well, we started, the company started in 1985 with oh, Temple of Rapture Trilogy. Yes. Okay, yeah. So, yeah. so it was a long time ago. Yeah. Um, so we I guess your own IP with, then, my mistake. Your own IP, right? Uh, well, and one of the first things we did was Mars Saga, which was our own IP. It was 1985, 86. So um, 86, I guess, say, something like that. Um, so, you know, we started right away on our own games, uh, trying to do our own things. Um, but it also worked on licensed properties. And we, in the beginning, Westwood was basically a porthouse. Um, people would have their games on 8-bit computers. And they wanted them on 16-bit computers, but their 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 programming and art teams at the at the companies were too valuable to put on the relatively small audiences of 16-bit computers. And they took a lot of work to get the 16-bit games to look good because the artwork was much much prettier, much bigger, a lot more pixels and such. So it just was a skill set that was uh, just not worth doing internally. So companies like Electronic Arts, Activision, other ones that were our customers, SSI, they just didn't uh, they didn't want to learn. They didn't want to have to hire people to do the ports. So port houses like ours and Incredible Technologies and a bunch of other ones just became very famous for um, porting other people's games. And then we, of course, wanted to make our own as well. So that's how we got into making yeah. our own games. And all the skill sets, I'm, I'm jumping around in the time. Yeah, no, it's... The skill, I, yeah. the skill sets do, lay, they do, you're absolutely right. They layer one after another after another and they become useful later. You just never know. And, and I'm struggling with just the volume of things you've worked on in, in my time. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, a, <laughs> it's, a, it's a huge number of games. Um, I, the last time I counted, it was, I think it was 150. Well, you uh, need to contact Wikipedia because you know, they're actually, they're, they did they're short. here. What is this? Yeah, it's only like 40. If you go, if, not even. If you go to Moby Games, um, let me see how many Moby they have. Games. They have more. They still don't have them all, by the way. <laughs> That's crazy. If you go to, yeah, if you go to Moby Games, let me see. Uh, yeah, Moby Games, and then if you go to Westwood, I think if I find uh, okay, by yeah, okay. If you go to Westwood Studios, let me see. If I, and if you follow it up, then you can go to um, yeah. Then it has all the games there. Let's see, they have let's see the entire list. They have listed three pages, <laughs> so that's I don't even know how many a hundred and. 67 per page so it's probably so 150 listed there and this is not all of them i have to say. <laughs> and i've worked on almost every game we ever made in some way right so i didn't i didn't always do big parts in some of them um and brett and i were a little less um we were less uh title mongers than uh, than or title uh, credits mongers than most people so if we didn't have play a major role in a game we didn't credit ourselves we just credited the people in the company that worked put a lot of time into something. So there was a bunch of, I mean, I could, I could claim some credit on, on, I, I swear almost every one of these, there might be one or two that I didn't do something on, but like, I don't know if I'm credit on a nightmare by Elm street, a nightmare on Elm street, but I did the artwork. 
Right. I mean, I did I did the title page, the loading page, and a bunch of the. I didn't do all the artwork, but I did a lot of the artwork, and I might not even be listed as an artist. So, it's that goes on and on and on. Um, so, yeah. You chose to do an RTS franchise. Well, you ha- you did one of the first recognized RTS games, and then you decided to create your own yeah, there, RTS there, IP. There wasn't really yeah for for Dune Two when Dune Two was created. That was uh, Joe Bostic and Brett really had the idea for that. It was inspired by a game called oh, which was it called now. Shoot, it'll come to me. I know what you're talking about, but um, I don't remember the name either. It wasn't. It, it wasn't the one everybody always. Oh, it's not the main though, one. Okay, never mind. It's not Herzog's Fi. It's not Herzog's Fi. Although everybody thinks it's Herzog's Fi, we didn't even know about Herzog's Fi at the time. To be honest, that was that was kind of what was weird about it. The Military Madness was the game. It was on the NES, um, NEC, NEC uh, Turbo Graphics, and yeah, Military Madness was this top-down turn-based strategy game. And at the time, Westwood was really uh, became very um, well known for taking games that were turn-based and making them real-time. So we were making real-time role-playing games with Eye of the Holder and things like that. Um, and we just loved the idea of making people have to think in, under pressure and not take all your time in the world. And, and part of that came from the fact that we made a bunch of these um, really deep simulation games with SSI, um, and you could take as long as you want to make a decision. And when you're playing multiplayer on those, I can tell you it's almost torture because you know somebody yes, could take 20, 20 minutes <laughs> to I make mean, a decision. Playing Catan is like, oh, my God. Is torture. Yeah. Playing Catan is, is torture oh my God. sometimes. <laughs> so, so if you're if you're ADHD like me, it's like the first thing you want to do is automate that stuff and put a shot clock on right. it. You know, like <laughs> speed chess, not regular sure. chess. Um, but anyways, that's uh, that's so the first game Dune Two was basically built around the idea of the harvest and the harvesters with the spice, the spice melange. They ran the universe, all these uh, constructs of building things. They you know because the the storyline of Dune is they had to go to this planet Arrakis and set up uh, places to harvest the, the the spice. You had the worms, which were a natural environment uh, danger. But at the same time, you had other people combating over it or fe- battling over it, and so you had these different factions. And that's that's actually um, where the real time strategy, what we call real time strategy, is on right now. And in fact, um, it was it was a novel idea to call it real time strategy. A lot of people argued against it and said nobody knows what that means. It's like, well, calling it a strategy learn. game, <laughs> yeah, calling it a strategy yeah. game would just be a you know a bullet through the head because people back then there wasn't there wasn't a big audience for strategy games. The original forecast for Dune 2, I think was like 30 or 40,000 copies is what they thought they could sell. And only based on the fact that Westwood did it because Westwood was well known for some popular other games that we had done, Quest Run 2 and some did, others. Did the, sorry, and, you. did the movie come out at that time as well, or is it much later? The movie came out earlier. Earlier, okay, yeah. Yeah, and we loved the movie. We loved the, the artwork and everything. And we also loved the series. Like I said, Brett's favorite book was Dune. And so um, there was a, the, the this little one house called Ordos that was mentioned once um, in the book and in the film. Uh, and so we were able to use anything that was anything that was in the film, um, even if it was in the script, but didn't get got cut. It got cut. Oh, really? So wow. we could use yeah, we could use anything from the film, but we couldn't use stuff that was in the book that wasn't in the film or a lot referenced in the film. We didn't have the literary rights; we just had the film rights. Oh, those are so, so weird. Those license deals. It's yeah, yeah, yeah. So that ended up you know coloring the game to some extent, and that's why Ordos we had to 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 make our third house. We had Harkonnen, our Atreides, and we, to have that third house. Um, it really, to have some flexibility, we had to pick one of the houses that wasn't well fleshed out. And so Ordos was uh, almost entirely a creation of 
uh, Brett Eady and uh, and Joe Bostic working collaboratively. Right. In those early days, you're also inventing new mechanics in the genre, like fog mm-hmm. of war and unit selection. And yeah, I mean, I think it'd be a little hyperbole to say that we invented those things because there were strategy games that had all those features before, but not in real time. Just for that genre um, so. is what I meant. Yeah, you're creating. Well, you're figuring out. Okay, do we want? Well, there was like, no genre. We, yeah, you we were creating a new genre, right, we were right. mashing up, mashing up a bunch of stuff. So, and then of course, Warcraft came out, which was you know very almost religiously followed the Dune 2 um, uh, kind of uh, form factor. Really? They had, yeah. yeah, yeah, it was very, very similar game. The only thing they did differently was they, they limited the number of units that you could create, um, and so a resource that limited the amount of units you could have in your inventory at any given time. So, But otherwise, I mean, Warcraft was, it was, was very, very similar to Dune 2. Um, they, they did some, a couple of nice innovations in the UI, too, um, but then we did Command and Conquer. Then they did Warcraft Two, and back and forth and back yes, and forth with and us. Age of Empires were, came into the picture, and yeah, a lot of those guys were all quite late. Or Age of Empires was quite eight, late. Ninety three, right? Eight, yeah, ninety three. Um, might have been. Yeah, I don't remember. It's been a while. Age of Empires. Well, couldn't have been ninety three. Because I had actually the the developer of that as well on here, and it was fascinating to kind of hear. And I also had um, Ed Del Castillo, who's worked on the first Red Alert. Yeah. And yeah, it's Ed, fascinating. Ed, Ed, did, Ed did a lot of work on. Well, Red Alert was supposed to just be an expansion pack for command and conquer and it kind of got out of control right. <laughs> yeah and then he went on well, to we, make his own rts genre he did yeah he yeah. did uh, his name of his company was liquid entertainment um i don't remember the name of the game but yeah uh, battle realms battle realms battle realms yeah. it was fascinating to, to to listen to i've so now i've heard three different four different people talk about rts games and it's always interesting oh we took this from the from them and they took this from us and it's like it it pushed the innovation so quickly in the RTS genre. It just blossomed. There were so many cool games at the time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it um, th- that was a very popular genre because of the success of um, the the people would love to play Dune Two. So I think we just created a, a just a ton of just a ton of copies really really fast. It was just how it happened. Yeah. Um, but then of course you know I'm, I'm not going to we borrowed a ton from every other company, so it wasn't like. Westwood was innovating and everybody was copying us. Quite the opposite. Everybody was innovating and it was up to each team to decide which pieces they wanted to take. Um, but we were, we were certainly the first, to say the least. <laughs> if, if you had infinite budget today and you wanted to make a new Dune, what's what's different about it? What would you do? Because the RTS genre is a little bit in the, I don't want to say in the hole, but there hasn't been a That's lot of... That's doldrums, yeah. Yeah, hasn't been a lot of innovations. Yeah, the, uh, the RTS genre as a whole... Um, kept pandering to a smaller and smaller group of really, really core people who wanted to play it um, competitively as well as um, individually. Uh, and, and so, you know, and, and Blizzard happily and very profitably um, continued to kind of um, stoke those flames along with a lot of other people. And I think that, you know, the casual consumer was left behind long ago. And so what happens when you do that, we just keep making this sort of devolving pyramid to a smaller, smaller number of, group of people. Now, the audience continues to grow, too, so it's possible that there's so many people that would want a core RTS experience now that you could actually afford to do one. But, you know, to compete with something like StarCraft II, you're talking it's, it's 100 million plus, you know, at least to get to that level of quality. Um, so if I had an infinite budget and I wanted to go build another RTS game, um, if it was even an RTS game, we asked about Dune. I, I'm not sure I would do it. It's because I was saying it's yeah. like kind of re, being re, re, reinvigorated. Re, what's the word I'm looking for? There's reinvigorated. New, yeah, yeah, there's new movies, and I'm saying this might yeah. be a decent. Actually, there is a new Dune game I think coming out. It's there's a 4X game, right? So yeah, yeah. So um, and and I think I think that 
Dune as a as a as a property has so much room to do some really amazing entertainment. Um, it's a great universe, experiences. To work with, right? Yeah, it's a great universe. I I don't know that if I was told, okay, you have an infinite budget in the Dune, the new Dune uh, movie license, what kind of game would you make? I'd have to think about that. Oh, that's a tough like, one. I couldn't couldn't just snap it up. <laughs> if somebody said you you have to do another RTS, um, I think I'd go for something that is very easy to play, um, very hard to master, has a very high skill gap. I would probably eliminate most of, in fact, actually all of any randomness in the game and with just through complexity of systems, um, but make it very, very accessible on the surface so that you would lean into, I could play casually with my buddies and have a great time. Um, and still, if we were really good at the game, there would be really high skill gaps. So there, there would be differentiation at the highest level of ability. Um, and, and you have to build a game around actions per minute if you're going to do that, which is a very different kind of design challenge than what we had uh, back when we built in. This, it's interesting that the esports scene wasn't really a thing when you were making these games, and today it's so prevalent. Even Age of Empires today has a massive esports scene. They have they still have tournaments for fifty, hundred thousand dollars. Would would esports yeah, be a big be, factor into an RTS game? Abso- for abso- you? Absolutely. I mean, it would be what the customers expect. At the end of the day, you'd want to give people, especially given Dune's um, hierarchy and legacy, you'd want to give people what they what they expect. Um, they they definitely don't want Dune too. Again, I mean, people who think they do go play it. You know, it's like it's <laughs> yeah. like it, it it's not it's it, there's so many innovations that have happened since then. You definitely don't want to do that again. But there's probably enough learning from what what StarCraft Two has mastered over the time to bring some of that in and yet still make something that's a little bit more accessible. Um, it, it's just a question of very artfully uh, putting the complexities of the systems underneath um, an intuitive and easy to easy to use um, UI. Uh, and before I before I even started, what I would do is go bone up on being a great Dune fan because that's the first place sure. you go if you want to create create something based on somebody's IP. You've got to try to be their biggest fan. And so, um, I, I mean, I've watched the stuff, but I haven't really analyzed it and shared it, torn it apart. So you'd have to do that first, right? And when I look at the remasters that they've kind of done today with Red Alert One, it kind of makes me wonder why didn't they just? I mean, I guess that maybe they're testing the grounds, but Red Alert Two seems like the ideal remaster candidate. Why don't? Why aren't we seeing that just yet? Um, I don't know. Um, I can tell you why we probably are not seeing it, but I'd be speculating. Um, the first remasters that Petrick lifted of Command and Conquer uh, were so well done and had revigorated the the kind of the zeitgeist or opinion of the public of what a Command and Conquer game is. And they did they did a beautiful job. I don't know if you played the the remastering I've of that, but they them, did yeah. a, they just did a beautiful job and being able to scrub between the original graphics yes, and the new graphics. And, I mean, it, if you're talking about the pe- these guys really loved, obviously they did, they worked on it, but they really loved the property. You could just feel it. Everything about it was really well done. So if you're a company that owns that intellectual property, I'm not bagging on EA. If you were any company that owns that intellectual property, you'd have to weigh what the risk of doing another one is. I mean, it has to be at least a slam dunk. It, the, like the game has to be incredibly well-made, incredibly well-crafted sure. and meet, to meet the standards. Or you're going to disappoint the very fans that you're trying to, to please. Um, and then you look at the, the return on that investment, the amount of money you have to spend and the amount of risk you have to take. Um, it's just hard to justify that when you can put the money into something else that might make a lot more. That's the problem with remasters is they're, they're great for nostalgia and stuff, but as a business, they're not, they don't have the kind of real big numbers that, that, um, that you'd like to see from a new IP. Right. Um, it's, I don't know if you know the story of why there's, um, Age of Empires, basically remaster, a definitive edition, excuse me. There's something called an Age of Empires definitive edition. Um, there was a guy that was a big fan of the game, started modding it, basically created his own new civilizations in it, 
And obviously, Age of Empires never died throughout its timeline. It never was kind of a dead game. It was yeah. people still being played, but it was kind of like less and less people. And then this guy made these new mods and created new civs, and all of a sudden, there was so much attention to it. I actually had him on the podcast. The day he uploaded the mod to you know the new civs he made, they crashed their website. Like That's how many people <laughs> were downloading it. And then, yeah. you know, two years later, Microsoft sees this potential, hires him, and gives him yeah. a team, and he creates this definitive edition that's kind of still thriving today. Yeah, and, and that's that's great. Um, you know, that's uh, that's certainly a thing to do, uh, and a great good good for Microsoft to notice that, and Microsoft can take that position. One of the great things about Microsoft as a company is that they have the, the pockets to be able to invest, over-invest in something surely for the benefit of the customers yes, right. and the fans. Um, and you know, I mean, I, I'm very, I'm a pragmatic pragmatic about this, as as you you have to be uh, when you're trying to run a business. Is um, other businesses may not look at it the same way. So, not every company has the attitude of let's let we know we have fans, we know how people like it. It may not be the most profitable thing we can do, but we've got enough money. Let's just go hire those people to do something that makes people happy. Because I think there's um, red alert to mods right now for new civil uh, yeah. new uh, civilization. New sides, right? Yeah, new sides. Yeah. Uh, yeah, new, new, yeah. Like I'm, I've seen people made entirely new campaigns from the game, right? Is that? Um, I don't know. I haven't no, played them, but I'm sure I have. Pretty positive. Sure have yeah, it's been, <laughs> it's sure been a while. <laughs> Even to this day, I look at footage of old like um, Red Alert Two stuff, and there's so much going on. Like there was so much level of detail to the games. Like the, there was so much effort. Like I'm, I remember watching a video of uh, I don't know, someone's trying to figure out if you can, uh, if you can uh, sink a ship by like flipping it on its back. So he's dropping bombs from the blimp, and then he gets a bunch of them, and eventually he does it. I'm like, wow, they actually programmed this into the game that you can sink the ship like over. that. <laughs> so, I mean, there's a lot of stuff that that's Bostic was the lead programmer on that. And um, there's a lot of work that went into the Relator. Actually, maybe Joe wasn't, actually, because a lot of guys in EA Pacific worked on that. So it might have been the team down there. Um, don't want to miscredit somebody. But um, but I tell you, they really loved it. In fact, of all the, uh, all the Command and Conquer games that we ever made, um, Red Alert 2 with Yuri's Revenge, the, the expansion yes. pack, was the one that I spent the most time on, and it was by far my favorite. I loved playing it against the computer and against people because the three sides were so completely different in how you had to play them, and yet they, you, you could, it really came down to skill as to which person won. Yeah. Which, what really did you as play well. as? What was your strategy if you had one? Um, I, could play, I could play any of the sides, yeah, yeah. but I really like playing Yuri. I like playing Yuri, Yuri yeah. because of the, yeah, because there were a lot of really crafty ways to use the mind control stuff. Right. That there was a lot of, um, I wouldn't call them. They weren't hidden or anything. They were they were certainly documented. But um, strategies and tactics that you would use that would be uh, with the Yuri primes and stuff that were just um, unusual, and people had a very difficult time figuring out how to defend against them. What were some of the biggest challenges when when you say you know you're saying the game is well balanced and stuff like that? What were some of the biggest challenges when you were balancing out the game? Well, I mean, it was, it was Mark Skaggs and the team down in AA Pacific that did a lot of that work. Um, our our team in, in Vegas were. Uh, reviewing and commenting and things like that, but the, the team down there did most of the work on balancing. Uh, the difficulty, having done a bunch of games and balanced a bunch of games, uh, just comes down to how do you how do you make different kinds of tactical approaches um, be equally potentially successful depending on the skill of the individual, um, and that's just a really hard thing to do. Right. You can you can start with the math and say, well, this unit does this amount of damage over time, so it's equal to this unit does this amount of damage over time. But if you think about it. A unit that fires really, really rapidly and whittles you down is very different than one that's, that has a real, low, real long load time and fires one big sure. bomb. Because if the one doesn't live, then it never gets its shot off, right? So there's a lot of factors you have to go into to, to balance all these things out. It takes a lot of playing too, because human beings 
always figure out ways to break these beautiful systems that we try to design. Um, and in the case of Red Alert 2, which I did really well, um, Red Alert 2 was after Tib Sun, and Tib Sun had built in a lot of features that uh, were were really um, they were just they were really cool, but they came in late, and when they were balanced. They were balanced to almost nerf them, so you don't really feel them. So terrain didn't really matter much. I don't think Red Alert 2 had terrain issues, but they also had um, this this idea of uh, veterancy that was basically just experience. Your units would level up, and the difference in Red Alert 2 was designing high or designing up to make sure that every single level made a big difference in the unit. It just makes it harder to balance because the the, the deltas and how much power they got over time were also something you had to balance. Um, but that made it a lot of fun because the, the risk to reward of investing in an upgrade um, was was really paid off versus uh, Tiberian Sun, although a good game and great fun, it was much more subtle. How hard is it to recreate that level of success that Red Alert 2 have? Because it, it seems like an impossible task almost to, to knock another yeah, one I mean, out, I, the home, I, out of the park, I guess. Yeah, I mean, it's always really hard. I mean, I think with the Generals games, they did beautiful games and they were really well-received. Um, I couldn't say relative to the market at the time they were as successful as Tibson um, or Red Alert 2. Those were kind of the pinnacle of the uh, uh, CNC successes. Um, so it's just a really difficult thing to do. I mean, if you've hit the nail on the head, it's not it's not easy to it's not easy to make somebody feel the same thing when they're playing yes. a sequel. Yeah. And and that's the problem is people go, well, I just want more of the same thing. It's like, yeah, not exactly. What you want to feel is the same way. And all that surprise and delight and enjoyment that you had. You know, when you come at the next game, you're coming with all that, you know, built in. Right. And so the, to meet the expectations of that same sense of wonder and delight is extremely difficult to do, especially when you have to consider the fact that there's also people coming in for the very first time. And anybody who came, claims that, oh, you know, Madden football, let's just do a, a sequel because that'll be easy. It's like, <laughs> no, no, no. It is really hard because you have a very fixed timeline and you have to decide what's going to be in the game, what's not going to be in the game. And you have to make things better without making things worse. <laughs> and, you know, it's really hard. Like, it's extremely difficult. And I think the two things that non-game designers, and even some game designers, miss all the time that are really difficult, the first is sequels are extremely difficult to do well. Um, and the second uh, is, um, believe it or not, casino games with uh, very small amounts of input are really hard to do. And whenever somebody goes, oh, man, it's a slot machine, it's just math, it's like, but it's not. It's really hard. Think about it. You're making a game that has to entertain somebody, and the only thing you do is press one button. Right. It's right yeah. Like really, really hard. Have to understand like, human psychology in a pretty high. You level. really do. At, at, a, at a very, it's incredibly deep. That the the payout tables and the 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 collaboration between the audiovisual effect and the amount of risk that somebody had to take over time to get that payoff. All of those things are what hits the dopamine levels, and that's what makes things entertaining and fun. Um, and so. Um, I always tell people, you know, whenever you think a design challenge isn't that hard, try it one time. You might find out that yeah, it's go from nothing to something. It's quite the, really hard. Yeah. And sequels are often misunderstood as being easy, and they're really not. They're extremely difficult. Um, Today, you also have uh, just so much more data to work with from customer feedbacks, retention time. There's, I mean, you kind of are you kind of upset that maybe in some of the older games that you designed, you didn't have as much feedback as you do today for anything you do. Yeah, you're the first person who asked it that way, by the way, and kudos for that. <laughs> um, most people go, you know, don't you miss the days when you used to just sit there and come up with an idea and you didn't have to worry about those pesky customers? And it's like, it's like exactly the opposite. I mean, the fact that you can be engaged with your community directly to build something, it's just, it's overwhelming. Um, and maybe that's the thing is it is overwhelming. You don't, you can't really set aside the creative process. Like there has to be an inventor. There has to be somebody with a vision. Um, if you try to 
design anything by committee. That's that's an old joke, you know. As a, you know, a camel is a horse built by committee, and um, you know, it's like it's the same kind of idea with anything. It's if you have a lot of powerful voices, it's difficult to make to have the thing that that they create have a single identity, a single real feel or voice, and um, and I think that that's actually the hardest part about dealing with the community and 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 really engaging them is you want them to be involved and you want them to have say and you want you want to be able to feed off of that and you you want to be able to put something out that's successful right out the gate because you took the time to understand what the customer wanted versus just guessing. Um, on the other hand, that amount of input, that amount of input, and, the, and sometimes the vocal minority can really mislead you into what you build. So yes, I didn't even think about that. Yeah, challenging. Yeah, the vocal minority can be a dangerous thing. Yeah, yeah, and they, and they even if it's a vocal majority, they may all think they want a thing, and and it, they really don't want it. It might not be a rational thing. It might be emotional, yeah. and that's not really what you want to do. With yeah, you. a lot of times people say, "I want," you know, it's like uh, I just want all the ice cream flavors, and I'm all in well right now. But you, you end up with a <laughs> stomach ache. You know, it's not it's not really what you want. That's a great analogy, right? And you were saying earlier that sometimes the developers might try to do something in the next game or the, the sequel, whatever, and they fail. And I think I heard a quote yesterday was like, in, in the quest of doing something, we're trying to do something great, we we fail to do something good. It's like, you yeah, can, oh, you it's can, painful. Right. Can, and that seems like a brutal thing to put so much time into something and just miss the mark or whatever it might be. Or, or you or you, you put a lot of commitment into something thinking that this is going to advance the art and make the game more fun. And then when it, Maybe it did for your test audience and your sure. test all the groups you had, but as soon as you go scale it, you realize, oh, actually, most people don't want to do this. Um, and, and like I said, trying to make something great in a sequel without making without doing something that breaks it is really hard because you you, you kind of have to do something different. You can't just do the same thing again. That's that's going to be satisfying for some side of the, some subset of the audience, but you'll be quickly devolving. This is a great transition then into Blade Runner and um, how you try to make it. I guess what's the thought process of making it first of all you know accessible to the fans but also not like the same as the movie because sometimes movie games will literally be like a scene for scene thing right and that's not fun either uh yeah yeah, as a huge fan of blade runner and i was really the creative driver behind the crazy all the crazy things we tried to do with that game i think i came up with new ones all the time drove the poor team crazy um (laughs) as a driver of that I think the motivation was fear. Um, fear, <laughs> as, really? a, as, a, as, a, as a huge fan of Blade Runner, I was definitely afraid of putting out something that wasn't didn't pay proper homage to the um, to the right. film. I got you. And and first and foremost, I'm just a, I'm just a huge Ridley Scott fan in general. Alien and Blade Runner being like sure. uh, just Fly, amazing, amazing. Yeah. Well, just amazing, and the sense of terror that is created in both of those movies, those films, um, without a lot of action sequences. Um, neither one has much action in it. And, and Blade Runner is a classically a story about um, trying to be disinterested, analytical, maybe robotic-ish, so much to the point where you're not really sure if Decker's a human or an irreplicant. He goes about the world kind of dispassionately. But at the same time, is there was a lot of fear, like every moment hey, the world could just explode in violence. And, and it does. And, and it's the fact that, you know, when I, when I used to tell the team, I said, I want to play this game and I want to be with my finger quivering over the mouse when I go from one room to the next, because I want to be, I want to be absolutely terrified that something might happen knowing that it probably won't. And that's hard. It's hard to create that. And so when you start with, that's the emotion that I was really trying to capture um, and then you say, okay, but it also has to be in this incredibly rich setting 
that just is, um, it's this dystopian future that just has so much, there's so much um, social commentary and everything about Blade Runner. Yes. And how are we going to capture that? And early on, there's a couple of programmers that like, hey, we should use the Voodoo FX. 3D was just coming around. And I'm like, yeah, I don't think we're going to get there. I What's don't think Voodoo we're going to get. What, what is that? It was sorry. just a 3D chipset you could add to your you. computer. Okay. Um, but there were basically 150 polygons that were flat shaded. I mean, you're you're not going to make, you're going to just have a bunch of origami running around. It's not going to look. <laughs> right. And, and some people did. And that's not to dismiss anybody who did great stuff. But I'm like, look, we can't do that. It's just not going to. It's And every pitch. That, that I heard at the time, and I think a lot of them that the Lad Company, uh, the Flavor Partnership heard, was basically, oh, we're going to do a Doom-like game where you're running around in a maze and you're shooting replicants. It's like, that completely misses the point. Right, right. <laughs> that is not what the game is about at all. Right. And that might be a mini moment, and it's definitely about or the film. That might be a mini moment in the film that you could maybe make an exciting thing about that. But then you would have to set it completely differently. You couldn't set it in the game world because people just weren't running around the streets of L.A. airing each other out. And in fact, it was a crime to murder somebody. So if you shot the wrong person, you had to lose. And that's not really the way shooters work. So so it was different. Sorry yeah. here, but what was the kind of... Because I watched the movie last week and it's a very, I feel, different experience viewing it today than it probably was viewing it, you know, 30, 40 years ago. Was yeah. there a big fear that, you know, our technology was advancing so much so that one day we this would be a real concern? And were people really scared of the future when it comes to technology? Because today, I kind of look at the movie and with with the level of inclusivity we have and all this stuff, I was like, oh, let the robots live. They look nice. <laughs> like, I wasn't thinking about the same way, obviously, I would have thought of it maybe 30, 40 years ago. I think we're still, as a species, I think we're still very afraid of creating something that will replace us. Um, you don't have to do much, much research to, to, you know, to discover the, the, um, uh, try to think of the word. Uh, I think it's because technology is so integrated Singularity. in our lives now, you know, no, that's no, the difference, no, the tech, right? The tech, I don't think, I'm, I don't think I'd agree. I think no? the technology, the singularity, the technical singularity that people are worried about with artificial intelligence is terrifying. As soon as we create computer that can create a computer i'm sorry no worries, no worries. Uh, yeah so i'll start over with that i think that people are are genuinely terrified of the technical singularity because as soon as we create com computers that can make computers smarter than us that quickly devolves into something that can su supplant us as a dominant um species if you want to call it there's nothing that could say an electronic species couldn't be the next dominant thing and there's tons of dystopian future stories of it all the time we're, we're genuinely terrified of that and the fact that that the, the whole thing of Blade Runner is um, robots that or replicated humans that are so real that they're indistinguishable from yes. humans is just terrifies you right to the core. So I think that's actually part of the fun. And and what was nice about the technology at the time is you know, we did, we didn't have metahuman, we couldn't make humans that looked completely believable, and it plays right into the fiction because right. everybody looked a little creepy and weird, right. the real yes, humans and non-humans. Yes. So we we didn't we 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 managed to um, avoid the um, the uncanny valley by having the whole game be uncanny, which is just sort of weird. Yeah. Anyways, I could go on and on. No, about no, no. It's, that's a great discussion. But it's, yeah. This is this is really what motivated us right from the beginning was how are we going to make a game that you're afraid to enter into a room, and that led to the decision of well, we're going to have to make it a simulator. Um, that we had worked on a game called Circuit's Edge year, years earlier that had something similar. And the idea that the when you were off screen, it was an adventure game, but when you were off screen, the game was simulating the movement of characters between the various scenes, even scenes that didn't exist within the game. And when they would be in the same scene, they might or might not transfer data back and forth. And that, yeah. That's that created ambitious. this, yeah. yeah, it just created this really unusual 
unpredictable adventure game that wasn't actually a branching story. People ask me all the time, can you just give us like a map? So for, especially for testing. So you just take the branches. I'm like, that is not how this works. It's, um, it's basically a bunch of nodes and there's conditions that have to be met to have that node fire. And the conditions vary based on the simulation. So um, we even have in there, it's really small nuance in there where the players, the, the characters will misinform each other and lie to each other behind the scenes. So if you really want to know a clue, you have to chase it all the way down to its root. If you don't actually get the, the, first-hand, the first-hand report, now they don't lie to you if they tell you at all. So that would have been too confusing, but they lie to each other. So if you're, you might talk to somebody who says, Oh yeah, so-and-so said they were a replicant. And then you go to talk to them and they go, I never said such a thing. You know, and that, oh, that kind of stuff. With a big long yeah. Yeah. Telephone. So that, yeah. that actually made it even harder, which is why you needed that database called the, the Kaya, which is the knowledge information agent named after uh, my assistant and the voice of, of both um, Eva, as well as uh, Very nice. yeah. uh, Kaya as a, uh, um, yeah, Kai Hunsinger. So <laughs> I don't want people to get this notion that I'm not worried about technology. Of course, every you know person is worried, but I, I just think yeah. it's a different time for me. From you know, obviously, in the older days, people were scared of computers because they knew so little about them. I kind of know minus yeah. the algorithms and all that stuff. I know kind of what I'm dealing with, so maybe my per, you know per, perceived fear is not as high. Yeah. But it's interesting to see kind of the the different things you try to do in the story. Yeah. Yeah, technologies are slaves. So as long as the slave behaves, nobody fears the slave. Right? <laughs> I see it as a, as a wave that we can't stop, to be honest. I just, I don't want to yeah. worry about it. Oh, like, advancement's coming. It's coming yeah. one way or the other. We're going to have to learn how to deal with it. As, Asimov's rules of robotics, you know, predate all of this. And they're, they they informed us a lot, too. We actually did think a lot about the um, Asimov books and uh, all the way from Foundation, all the way through the robot books to say, okay, what is really, because we were really into the, that goes back to Circuit Edge again. We read a lot of the cyberpunk stuff and, you know, you have to get it kind of boned up on all this stuff and Neuromancer and others. Um, and I think actually, the, the, if you look at Blade Runner, they got a lot of stuff right. The giant billboards that are animating the size of buildings, like yes. that was unthinkable technology back then, but, it, but they it, got it, the it's here now. Calls. They even got video calls, which was an They got everything. They, they didn't get telephone booths. Like they didn't, they didn't yeah. figure they they blew cell on phones, telephone right? booths. They didn't, have cell phones. No, but they didn't get cell phones. There's telephone booths, telephone which booths, makes no yeah. sense, right? Yeah. <laughs> but it's weird that they have video calls in the car, but they don't have yeah. cellular phones. And in fact, actually, I still remember when we worked on Circuit's Edge, another game that might, might or might not be on the list of many games we made. But um, it was in the Bouyin, which is an Arabic ghetto. And and the, the writer, George Al Geffinger, had every character with a belt phone. And we used to laugh about it. We go, oh, that's just so ridiculous. There's What's a no belt way. Phone? Like an, just a physical thing on belt. your just Literally a belt. belt. Literally a belt. Phone okay. your, a gotcha. phone on your belt. Um, a I didn't mishear right? you. I didn't mishear you. Okay, good. Oh, no, no. Yeah, it's a cell phone. But he didn't call it a cell phone. He called it a belt phone. And everybody would look at their belt phones and they everybody had one. And we're like, that's just such a ridiculous concept <laughs> because you'd have to have cell towers every few miles. It's right, like, right. that's just ridiculous. We're not going to do and, that. <laughs> Who would do that, right? It's like when people said electric cars, that's ridiculous. You'd have to have charging stations everywhere. I'm like, like gas stations. Well, yeah, yeah, but. Right, right. Well, yeah. Huh. <laughs> right, <laughs> it's like, right. Exactly, right? We can do it. <laughs> Just do we have the will. Right. Is it true that Ridley Scott was not a fan originally of the idea of a video game? I don't know that. Um, we never talked to Ridley. Uh, the, the reason we never really reached out to him or his agent was the. The, the business of Blade Runner, the movie, was quite complicated, and they, they weren't on the best of terms, um, the people that own the rights and Ridley. Um, and, and there's probably, I mean, I'm, I'm, I wasn't there, so I can't really opine on that as to who is more in the right or not, but we had the license from the people who had the property. So, you know, obviously, uh, working with Ridley was not something that they were, they, they asked us, they said, do you really think you need to work with Ridley? It was sort of that kind of a question. And we're like, uh, 
we, we probably don't. I mean, we really how disappointed though great. were you like that you can be like I, yeah. I would love to come on just like for I'd love to, but <laughs> right. but I don't think you know I think he might have been anti games at the time. I don't know. I don't sure. know that for sure. Um, I know Harrison Ford had spoken out against games because he was concerned. Maybe it was Harrison that, uh, Ford. Yeah, that, that actors weren't being treated fairly um, because uh, you know people were the, the games industry was sort of exploiting their things. I mean, he, he was on the record of saying those kinds of things, and I think in, in some ways, you know, he wasn't wrong. There were parts, but in our case for Blade Runner, I mean, we were employing three actors for every character in the game. Um, Wait, in what sense was he talking about? What did he mean? They were kind of exploiting it. Um, he was just he just felt like um, all the companies that were doing video games should be SAG. Uh, signatories and should be recording oh, and should be paying um, scale wages and the, you know uh, profit participation all the things that, that are common in Hollywood and the business models and games just didn't work that way um, used mostly after for for audio um, but but we were SAC signatory and and after so we were doing it by the book I don't think if we had reached out to Harrison too I think we probably could have made the case he's just I don't think you know he was a very successful actor at the time and I just don't think that he felt sure. like it was in his best interest to work in games. Um, and and in many and, and for many actors, he felt like they weren't being treated fairly. Uh, he's on the record of saying that's not something I'm putting words in his mouth. But we didn't reach out to him because um, we specifically decided decided not to do the story of the film, but to do a story that was parallel with the film. So so we didn't need. In fact, interacting with Decker would have been kind of hard to do because then it would have been something that wasn't in the film. We could have probably done it, but boy, we'd had a really box the interactions you had with them in because you maybe in kind of narratives, there were a couple of characters that we had to be very careful with. And, and you, you know, we wouldn't let you, couldn't let you kill Roy Batty or something like that because you'd destroy this. It had the game, the story, one of the constraints we had was the story had to seamlessly live within the game, within the film world without changing anything that happened in the film, but still allow things to happen off screen that may or may not have happened in the film. Right. And I heard you saying there was a lot of limitations because at the ultimately, I think you had to use four CDs to make the game. Alrighty, Nelly here with an abrupt ending. Uh, Lou had a call, a meeting to go to, so we didn't get to finish the full podcast, but no worries. He'll be back for another episode next week. We still have to talk about a game he made with Steven Spielberg for um, the Wii U, which is going to be really interesting. I want to talk a bit more about Blade Runner and some other Command and Conquer stuff. And then lastly, I want to talk about some crypto stuff and crypto gaming and what he thinks the future of the space is. So that's going to be a spicy one as well. And I'll see you next time I see you.